We are going to continue on our series that uh, we started a couple of weeks ago on uh, what I'm calling dangerous prayers. Uh, dangerous in the sense that they're difficult, not in the sense that uh, uh, they're bad for us, uh, but just uh, it takes some boldness to pray these prayers. It, t- it takes the work of the Spirit in our own hearts to get uh, beyond our fears and the things that will hold us back from praying in these ways. And so it feels dangerous to us, and sometimes it's dangerous to our, our pride, and, and hopefully it's dangerous to our, our sinful tendencies because uh, we're dealing with those things by the Spirit is dealing with those things in us. But uh, I was thinking about my life of prayer and, and the times when I've been together with others uh, praying about certain things. What do we most often pray for? Think about the times that you pray. Most people pray at one time or another. Some, sometimes people pray just, you know, when things are falling apart and it's crisis. Others of you pray on a regular basis. What are the things that you most often pray about? Uh, what o- occupies the bulk of time uh, in the, those times of prayer? And I think probably for most of us, the bulk of the time and the bulk of the numbers of prayers that we pray are prayers that we pray for either ourselves or for our family, those close to us, uh, or for, you know, people that are good friends or whatever. It's, it's kind of a small circle, right, of people that we uh, care a lot about, and those are the people that we often uh, pray for the most, anyway, the bulk of the time. I, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying this is the reality oftentimes of how we pray, and, and most often we pray, you know, God, would you, would you do this? Would you do this in my life? Would you do this for me? Or God, would you do this for my family? Would you, would you open up this door of opportunity for me? Whatever it might be. But uh, today, as we get into the third and last week of, of this series on, on dangerous prayers, what I'm encouraging us to pray is, is some very challenging prayers. Uh, prayers that take us out of that, that comfortable place sometimes uh, that we like to stay in, that's safe and familiar, and that make and put us on maybe something that feels a little more dangerous. They're not safe prayers. They're dangerous prayers. So on week one, if you were here, uh, we prayed a prayer. Do you remember what it was? Two words. Search me. Okay. So from Psalm 139, talks about, Search me, God, know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Last week, uh, we talked about a prayer that in, in a lot of ways maybe feels even more dangerous than the first week, which is this prayer, Break Me. Talked about what it means uh, to be broken and how important that is to be able to see God working in our lives, and, and uh, not broken in the sense that, you know, we're just absolutely done in, that we, you know, we can't even function, but broken in the sense that God is working in us to break off of the things, the fears, the anxious thoughts, the, uh, the things that hold us back from following Him wholeheartedly, and we want God, we pray that God would break those things off of us so that we can follow Him freely. And uh, so today, we are going to pray a prayer of availability. So we, we ask God to search us, we ask God to break us of these things, and now we're saying, I'm available. This is a prayer of availability. So here's one way we could pray it. God, I'm your servant. 
and I want to be available for whatever you might call me to do. It's a prayer of availability. So let's, let's just stop and pray together. Father, you are our God. Uh, you are the Holy One, the Lord of heaven's armies, but you are also the one who invites us into your presence, who calls us your friend, who makes us your sons and daughters. And so, Lord, help us to understand that, to get a, a deeper vision of who you are in your holiness, but also in your deep, deep love in in those times when you convict us of our sins, but also in those times when you uh, forgive us and cleanse us and renew us and make us holy. So, Father, come and lead us. Amen. So, throughout the scriptures, if you read them, you'll see instances of God calling people, both in the Old and the New Testament, God calls people, and the thing that encourages me is that He calls all kinds of people, uh, and uh, people that, if I was God, and that's a scary thought, but if I was God, I probably wouldn't call them, many of them. They're messed up. They're broken people. They do stupid things, just like I do at times, and yet God calls them, and He sends them. It's very common. In Scripture, there are some extraordinary stories of that. This is one of them uh, that say, you know, the method and the means of God calling, the moment when God calls that person is just, it's absolutely overwhelming. It's, you know, uh, it's visions of heaven and heaven open and it's burning bushes and it's all sorts of things like that. And, and, and sometimes we get caught up on that and we say, well, that's never happened to me. You know, I've never heard a voice from heaven. I've never seen a, a burning bush. You know, I've ne you know, never seen these visions of the throne room of God. So has God called me? I've never seen those things. Uh, be one, I'm not sure. It would be wonderful on one hand, and on one hand it would be absolutely terrifying. But it doesn't have to be just that. The, the point is that God meets us in a moment in time or moments in time in our lives, and He calls us ordinary men and women. He calls us and he sends us. But we don't, I'll speak for myself, I don't always respond positively to his call. Uh, I'm not always in class. I was the guy that would sit in the back of the room always. If I could find a seat at the back, I would be at the back. I would slouch down so hopefully the teacher couldn't see me and pick me to do whatever he, want, she, he or she, he wanted me to do in class. I would not be the one to put up my hand and say, teacher, pick me. I would not be the one. I would be the last one. Uh, and so we're not always the first ones to say to God, God, you're calling me. Pick me. Or you're calling, you're looking for someone to do this. Pick me. You know, a lot of times we resist that. And we're not that unusual not that much different than people in the scripture. So I'll give you some examples of responses to God when God says, when God calls uh, people to go. So Jonah, you may know the story of Jonah. Uh, he responded to the call of God this way. He said, here am I, I'm here, I'm not going. And so some of you can relate to, uh, to that. I can relate to that. When God calls you, you say, I'm not doing it. I'm going to dig in my heels. I'm not going. So Jonah in chapter 1, verse 
1 to 3, God spoke and said, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So what did Jonah do? He ran away. He ran the other direction. So Jonah got up, it says in the scripture, and he went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. Good luck with that. Right? It doesn't work real well. So Jonah basically said, here I am, I'm not going, and I wonder how many of you, like me, have had that experience too. You felt prompted to do something, to say something, to go somewhere, and you say, I know I'm supposed to do this, I know I'm supposed to say this, I'm supposed to help this person, here I am God, but not today. Maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day, but not today, I'm not doing it. So that's Jonah's story. It's mine as well. Second one is Moses. And this is what Moses said. He said, here I am. Send somebody else. Send somebody else. I'm here, but I'm not really available, so send my brother. He's better at this than me. This isn't perfect for my skill set. I know you're calling me, but you you probably made a mistake. You really wanted to call my brother because he's much better at this than I am, so call him instead. So here I am, but I'm not uh, really available for that calling. It doesn't quite fit me. So verse 10 of Exodus chapter 3 says, God spoke and said, Now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses knew. I mean, it wasn't as if he was debating with God about the merits of this plan initially. It wasn't as if he said, yeah, it's better that we're slaves. Uh, He knew that it was needed, but instead of saying, sure, I'm going to go You've called me for some reason, and so I'm going to go. He said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? You ever said that? Who am I, God? That, that I, I'm not good enough. I don't have the right skills. I'm not eloquent. I'm not gifted. I'm not musical. I'm not uh, an extrovert. I'm not whatever. You, you fill in the blanks. Who am I? I'm not good enough. Uh, send somebody else. I'm not the right person. And I've struggled with this one a lot. Um, so I've, I think I've shared the, the story of my experience in, in, uh, in seminary. Uh, that's the master's level training for pastors. It was, you know, I'd been in school for a long time. I had a long and checkered career uh, of academics, and I made it that far. And, uh, you know, that was all geared toward training to be a pastor, and I was wrestling with that, resisting it, struggling against it, because most of the stuff that I thought I would be required to do as a pastor, I didn't like doing, and it didn't suit my personality. And I'm an introvert, and I don't like being in front of people, and I don't like leading, and I would rather be in the back row and let somebody else lead. Still would. (laughs) Still would rather it that way. I'd like to just fade in the background and be quiet. But (laughs) God had a different plan, right? And so... I had to wrestle with that, uh, with that whole idea of, you know, if God calls you, I may debate with him about whether I'm the right one, whether he's got it right, but I, he called me. And at one point, I had to surrender my will to his will and say, in that, in that service, that day, say, I don't know why you picked me for this particular task. It seems, doesn't seem to fit in my mind, but... I guess you did, so I'm just going to surrender my will, and you're going to have to do it, 
because I cannot do this. So, so all of us, I think, struggle with those kinds of things at times. Send somebody else. And then the third one is, is Isaiah, the, the passage that uh, we read before. It's a different response altogether. He prays a very dangerous prayer. So that's what we're going to focus on today. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8 says this, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? So notice what Isaiah says in response. He doesn't say, not now, I'm not going. He doesn't dig in his heels. He doesn't say, you know, take my brother. He says, here I am, send me. Here I am, God, send me. It's a really dangerous prayer, and that's one I want to challenge you today to pray yourself. Here I am, God, I'm available. Uh, you have permission to interrupt my neatly laid plans. And God, if you want me to go somewhere, if I'll go. If you want me to stay, I'll stay. If you want me to say something to someone, I'll speak. If you want me to simply be quiet and pray, I'll pray. If you want me to give something away, if you want me to use my talents and my time for something, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want, I'll do it. Here I am. Send me. I'm completely available to you. I'm your servant. That is one dangerous prayer. And it's a very different response to what Moses and Jonah had. So, and the interesting thing is, is that God in that vision that, that uh, Isaiah has of the throne room of God, it, it's, it seems like he, uh, God isn't actually saying, you know, Isaiah, I want you to do this, I want you to go. It's kind of this general call out there, like, who, you know, we've got this task uh, we've got these people that need to hear this message. We need a messenger. Who will go? People. It's like the classroom. Here we are in the classroom. Uh, we've got the seraphs flying around and uh, praising God and saying, holy, holy, holy. It could have been them that said, hey, take us. Uh, and Isaiah is like that kid in the classroom who says, hey, pick me. Send me. I'll go. Send me. I wonder, you know, what had happened to get him to the place where he could surrender his life and his plans, especially considering, and if you read that last part of, you listened to that last part of Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's calling was not an easy one. How would you like that job, right? God says, I'm going to call you and I'm going to send you to people who aren't going to listen to you. And the more you talk, the less they're going to listen. And the more you give them the message, the harder their hearts are going to become, and their ears are plugged, and their eyes are blind, and they can't see, and they're not going to listen, and that's your job. Just keep telling them. Great. <laughs> Sign me up. Uh, so, but he puts up his hand. So how do you get to the place where you have, you're so committed to God's will above anything else that you say, whatever it takes, I'll do it. There's three things that have to happen. They're in this passage the first one is you need to have a genuine encounter with God. That's the first step. And when you have an understanding of the holiness of God and who He is, the beauty of who He is, the greatness of God, the Lord of heaven's armies, and you also recognize God's grace and goodness to you, it brings you to the point of surrender where you can say, send me. The Apostle Paul had an encounter with the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, that turned his whole life in a different direction. 
And he, his testimony of his life said, I die daily. It means that he's dying. Every, every day when he gets up, he says, you know, not my will but yours be done. Every day when he gets up, he says, the most important thing in my life is not to do what I want to do necessarily, but to do your will. I want your will every single day. And he went on to say, I am crucified with Christ, but nevertheless I live. It is no longer I who lives now. It is Christ who lives in me. Something amazing, transformative had happened in Paul's life. You know, the encounter that Isaiah had or Paul had, doesn't, it doesn't have to look the same way for us. But we need to have an experience with the living God. And, and oftentimes that experience may include an awareness of our own sinfulness. So if you really see God in His glory and His holiness, sometimes, you know, in comparison, we see ourselves. We begin to have a more accurate view of who we are. And we see our sinfulness, but we also recognize God's glory and His forgiveness and His grace, and we, but we know that we don't deserve it. And so there needs to be this encounter that, you know, we, it, it takes us beyond just knowing things. I can recite, recite a list of creeds or beliefs or whatever. I can quote my Bible. I know the answers to your, you know, spiritual questions. Uh, it takes more than that. It has to go from your head down to your heart to get to you to the point to, to say that, yes, I'm in. Please use me. I want to be your hands. I want to be your feet. I want to show the same love that you have shown me wherever you take me. Here I am, God. Send me. We need a genuine encounter with God. And so the interesting thing about this passage, or one of the many interesting things about this passage, starts off with a historical reference that's kind of obscure to us, not, maybe not that interesting to us, and our time was to them when they heard it, in the year King Uzziah died. So this amazing, overwhelming vision of God is placed in a historical context. It happened at a particular time to a particular person. And in his life, in the, his history, in the history of God's people, it changed the course of their lives. And so think about your life. What are those significant moments in your life that have changed the trajectory of your life? So, um, you know, in the year, so you could, you could rewrite your story. In the year that I graduated from high school, something significant happened. In the year that I went to summer camp, God met me, changed the course of my life. Uh, in the year that I got married, God changed my life, made me a lot, immediately, like, just like that, made me, a less, made me a less selfish person. Well, not, probably not, but that takes time. In the year when my, I lost my job, in the year when whatever it might be, those significant moments in your life uh, oftentimes are meant, you know, God, they get our attention, right? We, we get our attention off of ourselves for a moment. God wants to speak to us in that time and show us something of ourselves, of himself, and what his call is in our life. So Isaiah had this life-transforming encounter with God that changed the direction of his life, changed the direction of the people of God. In the year King Uzziah died, that's when it happened. And so even though that vision seems weird to our ears and our eyes of these creatures singing, holy, 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 it's rooted in real people in a real time, and it uh, changed the direction. God enters into our reality, and He calls us, and He sends us. 
So think about that for a moment. Can you think of any moments like that in your life that have changed the direction of your life? So as we pass through those times of transition, whether they're positive, whether they're celebrations or crises, God can meet us in those moments with a fresh vision of who He is and what He wants us to do and a fresh word from God. Sometimes it's unexpected, unplanned, often it is, and in ways that lead us to a sense of awe. I think one of the, sen- the songs had that word awe in it, right? Uh, and uh, so it's interesting. I was reading about a, a research project uh, about emotions, and they're talking about uh, the kinds of emotions that lead to significant changes in people's lives. And uh, they came up with, the, in the study of, I think it was 15,000 people that went through this study, that there's one particular emotion that leads, in most cases, to a significant change. And it takes people out of sort of being narrowly focused on themselves to being focused on others and the, and the needs of a group. And that emotion is the, is the sense of, of awe of wonder, the sense of awe. And uh, they t- describe it this way. It's the ultimate collective emotion. It motivates people to do things that enhance the greater good. And uh, there, there are activities, kinds of things that kind of literally or figuratively give us goosebumps. And it can be in collective rituals, times of worship together, or uh, when you see something just absolutely awe-inspiring in creation or it could be a, a piece of music that just absolutely grips your soul and, you, you know, you, you get shivers and, and goosebumps. Uh, or a piece, a work of art, uh, or whatever. There's all sorts of ways that we have that sense of awe. And it shifts us from our focus on ourselves to something greater. And so, as they've researched things, uh, they've, they've seen that that can, that can work in a whole community. And they said that we, one of the, the quotes from that talks about that we live in a time of awe deprivation. And uh, in our broad, we need a shift. Uh, and it's happened in the, uh, there has been a shift in the last 50 years ago. People have become more individualistic, more self-focused, more materialistic, and less connected to others. And they suggested to reverse the trend, we suggest people instead experience more everyday awe to actively seek out what gives them goosebumps. Now, I suppose you could carry that to harmful extremes. <laughs> but what they're saying, in a sense, is uh, awe leads to mission. Genuine encounters with God lead to mission. And so maybe that's why some of us are not as available to God as we should or could be. Maybe it's because we haven't sought Him with that urgency or that desire for a long, long time. And so we need that sense of the awe, the presence of God. So what do you need to genuinely experience that surrender? The second thing is that we need an awareness of our sinfulness. And often those two things go together, an encounter with God and an awareness of our sinfulness. And Isaiah was painfully aware of that. He was aware of his own personal sinfulness, and he was aware of the fact that he was part of a people who were also characterized by sinfulness. And so he would have been, I think, genuinely able to pray the prayer that we talked about 
the first week that we were together from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And as a result of him praying that prayer, God was uncovering stuff. Remember we talked about that before? Sometimes we don't want to pray that prayer because we don't want to see what's inside. We'd rather pretend that it's not there. We'd rather uh, present a good front to others and even try to fool ourselves. We, can, we have the power uh, to deceive ourselves. We cannot deceive God, but we can deceive ourselves. And so as a whole people, uh, they had that ability, the, the people of Judah had that ability to deceive themselves. And so if you were to read through the first five chapters in advance of reading chapter 6, you'd see little pictures of what that uh, was like. They'd forgotten God. They'd forgotten God and forsaken Him. And, and the prophet says, Oh, what a sinful nature they are, loaded down with the burden of guilt. They're evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They've devised, despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. And in chapter 1, verse 15, talks about the worship of the people of God. It says it's useless. It's futile. When you lift up your hands in prayer, God says, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Their leaders were corrupt, verse 23 in chapter 1. Your leaders are rebels, the companions of thieves. All of them love, love bribes and demand chaos. They refuse to defend the cause of orphans or fight the rights of widows. And verse chapter 5, verse 8, the greed and unjust treatment of the poor, what sorrow for you to buy up house after house. They're materialistically, they're buying up, they didn't need just one house, they needed multiple houses. And field after field until everyone is evicted and you live alone in the land. It's like, I, I'll just grab everything I can grab, it doesn't matter if, anybody, if other people have nothing, I'm just going to take all that I can get. Materialistic and greedy. And on top of that, Politically, they were in turmoil. So the, one of their good kings, there was lots of bad ones, had just died. So it's not a pretty picture. So Isaiah is very aware of that in that moment as he sees that vision of God in the throne, and he's a broken man. He's devastated. In fact, he, he feels like, I'm doomed. The NLT, the New Living Translation says, I'm doomed. It's like, you know, this is it's kind of a common experience in scriptures. Like if you see God... If he's there, you see a vision of God, you're, you're a dead man. You're a dead woman. You're, you're on the floor right now, and you're not sure whether you're going to survive this experience. You know, if your, whole, if your sin is completely bare and open, you can't hide it. You can hide it from yourself and others, but it's open to God. There he is. You know, you've got this vision of him. Uh, he thought, this is it. The curtain's for me. I'm done. That's, this is the last thing I'm going to see. Time to meet your maker. <laughs> there he is. Uh, and yet, it doesn't turn out that way, does it? Because, you know, you don't, you and I, I can, I can plead my innocent before you. I can say, I'm a pretty good guy. I, th I think I do a lot of good things. And, you know, I do more bad, good than bad. And, you know, in comparison to so-and-so or so-and-so, I'm, I'm actually pretty good. But when you're in, in, the, in the presence of the holiness of God, you're not going to be pleading your innocent innocence, you're going to say, oh, God, have mercy. But he has. <laughs> he has. So that's the third one. Because I think, I think Isaiah not only thought, probably thought that, I think he thought he was a dead man right then, 
or at, at, the, at the minimum, he thought, how could God ever use a man like me amongst a people like we are? We are absolutely disqualified from serving God. We have too much sin. We've said too many things, done too many things. God knows my heart. I can't hide it. He can never use people like me, like us. You ever thought that? One of the main points, I think, of this passage is sin doesn't disqualify sinners, disqualify sinners from being God's servants. God makes servants out of sinners. He doesn't have any choice, actually. <laughs> if we're going to use human beings, that's what you get to work with. So, good news, right? We've been talking about some of the bad news. The good news is coming. Here's number three, that you need a genuine understanding of God's grace. So it's kind of a weird thing, this, this unclean lips, filthy lips kind of thing. It's not that the lips are the fault. You know, it's not that you, know, you could cut your lips off if you're a sin and you say sinful things and you'd be good. <laughs> Never say anything bad. It comes from within, Jesus said. These are the things that defile you. It's not the external that defiles you. It's what comes from within. That's where the cleansing needs to happen. Uh, but it's symbolic of the, the motivations and the things that we do and say. Uh, it's the stuff of life that is tainted with sin. And so uh, he's in the presence of this holy God, the Lord of heaven's armies. But rather than death, what does he get? Cleansing. Take the coal from the fire, touches it to his lips. So, I mean, it, it does stress that this is serious stuff. You know, we're not just brushing it over. We're, we're going to take care of this sin problem of yours, Isaiah, and the people. I can take care of this. And so he takes that, to- those, uh, that coal and the tongs, touches his lips, and he's forgiven. Now that it has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, your sin is blotted out. How would it feel to hear those words? Have you heard them? Maybe not exactly that way, but have you heard those words? Do you, I guess it's one thing to hear them too, and it's another to believe them. But instead of being struck down and destroyed or disqualified or put on the scrap heap of life uh, as a broken man, Isaiah is made whole and cleansed. He's healed by an act of grace, pure grace. So this is the gospel that we preach. In Christ himself comes down to broken, sinful people. And he himself is broken on the cross and sheds his blood for us to give us forgiveness, cleansing, wholeness, new life. So that is the motivating power, the motivating understanding experience for mission. So I don't go out on mission and share the gospel because I feel really guilty about all the bad stuff that I have done and said or not done and not said. That's not why I do it. I don't go out on mission and, and do what God tells me because uh, I'm trying to earn my you know, brownie points from God. I, I'm trying to earn his favor, work my way into kingdom. I don't do it because of that. I do it out of gratitude uh, for what he has done in my life that instead of destroying me and when I come to him with my sins, he cleanses me and he renews me. That's the motive for going. So we're sent to join God in mission because we have encountered the living God and he has shown us our sins, but we have not been destroyed. 
Instead, he cleanses us and he renews us and we're made whole. And we can say, here I am. Send me. Here's my life. You can interrupt it. I give you permission to take it in another direction if that's what you want to do. Here's my day. Here's my plan for this day. But God, you can come into this. I want you to. And I want you to lead me. And how do you get there? You need that encounter with God, that experience of the presence of God. You need to let him uncover your life. Search my heart. Show me what's there. And you need to then, don't stay there. Don't wallow in it. Don't kick yourself around for the rest of your life because you're part of this sinful people. Instead, just say, God, I need your cleansing. I need you to renew me, cleanse me, set me free, break this off of me, fill me with your spirit, send me out. So some people will say, like Jonah, God, I'm here, don't send me. Or like Moses, uh, here I am, send somebody else. Send my brother, send my sister, whoever it might be. But my hope and my prayer for you and for me is that we're going to react differently. Uh, Because we have experienced God, because we're coming to know Him. And when you do that, you can't help but say, here I am, God, send me. So let's pray together. Father, we pray today that we would truly, honestly experience you in such a way that our lives are different. I would pray that you would make your presence known to us even right now. And God, I pray that you would uncover our lives, that you would search our hearts, not that we would get stuck there in shame and guilt, because, but because we would recognize the wonderful grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the deep, deep love of the Father, and that by your Spirit, you would, impor- you would pour out your cleansing power into our lives, set us free, and fill us again. So God, I know that when I'm changed like that, when we're changed like that, that we will be willing to go wherever you want us to go. Say whatever you want us to say. Do whatever you want us to say. Do whatever you want us to do. Lord, you are good. We trust in you. In Jesus' name.